This is Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works, and you're listening to Books on Pod, and I've just had a really interesting conversation about my book. Thank you very much for interviewing me. Hello, readers. Kevin Davies is the executive director of the CRISPR Journal and the founding editor of Nature Genetics. He holds a master's in biochemistry from Oxford, a PhD in molecular genetics from the University of London, and is the author of Cracking the Genome and The $1,000 Genome. His newest book is Editing Humanity, the CRISPR Revolution, and the New Era of Genome Editing. Kevin, thank you for the time. How are you today? Hey, I'm fine, thanks. So people may be confused by this, so I wanted to start with a clarification for some context. What is CRISPR and what is CRISPR gene editing? Brilliant questions to ask, Trey. Thank you for having me on. CRISPR stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. And you really don't have to remember any of that. It's simply a naturally occurring section of DNA in bacteria and other microorganisms that has evolved and been preserved over millions upon millions, if not billions of years, as an antiviral defense system. So the study of this CRISPR motif or array in bacteria has been of interest to a relatively small group of scientists and microbiologists in particular for a few decades now. These repeats were first described in 1987. But I wouldn't be here talking about a book, one of many on CRISPR and gene editing, if this system hadn't been studied, investigated, and then brilliantly adapted and turned for our own benefit, our own ends, into a gene editing system using some of the components that bacteria have as part of their CRISPR antiviral arsenal and turning them into a precise tool for genome editing, really the molecular equivalent of a word processor where we can, just as when you write a book or an an essay or an article or a letter, you can use your cursor and highlight different words and sentences and sections and flip and rearrange and correct typos here and there and everywhere. CRISPR allows us essentially to do the same thing, but now on DNA. And that opens up just a world of possibilities. You and others say that CRISPR editing is better than previous gene editing platforms, in part because it's so simple. What makes it so simple? Well, people have found it relatively easy to use in contrast to earlier iterations of gene editing. So we've had gene editing platforms and technologies since the early 2000s. And there was one company in California in particular called Sangamo, that pioneered one particular form of gene editing system called zinc finger nucleases. But while very precise, it was also very complicated, very intricate to program these nucleases to target the specific sequence of DNA that you wanted to target. And as a result, relatively few groups have been able to pursue this technology. And really only one biotech company has amassed the intellectual property that allows them to pursue it. They have taken it into the clinic. And that was the first gene editing system into the clinic. But when CRISPR gene editing came along in 2012 and 2013, it really unleashed a revolution because investigators around the world were able to take these components program whatever bit of genetic material they wanted to target any gene of interest in any organism, from bacteria to plants to human beings. And they found it orders of magnitude easier to use. And the other beauty of this is that you don't need expensive equipment. You don't need to buy a million dollar gene sequencing instrument or something. It's something that even high school students can get to work. And that's in large part why this has just become such an explosive tool. You point out that the original rivalry on this planet has nothing to do with anything in a sports arena. It's not the Yankees or Red Sox (laughs) or Bears and Packers. It's actually bacteria versus viruses. How does this relate to CRISPR? Well, we've learned that the reason that bacteria and other microbes have evolved these CRISPR elements is that Bacteria can't survive if they can't fend off their mortal enemy, 
their mortal foe over eons of evolution, and that is viruses. There's a whole class of viruses called phages that specifically attack bacteria. That's how phages grow and multiply and spread. So that's their job. And for bacteria, they have to evolve a, some sort of defense system. And when I was a graduate student a long time ago, back in the 1980s in London, we knew of bacterial defense systems. They had a whole suite of enzymes in different types of bacteria called restriction enzymes. And the guys who discovered this won the Nobel Prize way back for that discovery. And so we thought we understood what bacterial defense systems were all about. This was featured in all the textbooks. And we adapted these enzymes to allow us to cut and paste DNA. And this was the seeds of the recombinant DNA revolution, the biotech revolution that gave us all these great companies like Genentech and Genzyme and many, many, many others based on the ability and the properties of these restriction enzymes. And then slowly and steadily over the last 20 years, we've begun to explore another layer of defense system. And these CRISPR repeats in bacteria are simply a way that bacteria are able to capture a short element of a virus, a short segment of its genetic material. And then the bacteria cleverly stitch it into their own DNA and it serves as sort of a mugshot, a memory card. And if generations, years later, the same virus should infect the progeny of those bacteria, the bacteria sort of activate the, these genetic memories that they've stitched into their DNA and attach it to an enzyme, sort of weaponizing it. And in so doing, can now scan any foreign DNA that's coming into their cells and if they detect the same sequence because of a match with the sequence that they've captured, then this enzyme that they've weaponized can go about, and this is the molecular scissors metaphor that you often hear about with CRISPR, it then just goes about and absolutely carves up and destroys the viral DNA before the viral DNA can destroy the bacterium. Is there a big difference in how genes are edited in humans, mice, and plants? Not really. CRISPR can work in all of these contexts. So that's really one of the remarkable things about this technology and why it's so widely touted to win the Nobel Prize, if not this year, then surely in the next few years, because it's become essentially a universal tool. It doesn't really matter what organism or sequence we're looking at. It doesn't really matter what gene we want to edit for what purpose. CRISPR has become this universal gene editing tool. So whether I'm a high school student in Iowa or a professor of biology in Lithuania, I can order the components that I need. I can program. There's websites, just like ordering a book on Amazon. And then with the right materials, many of which are supplied by a nonprofit in Boston called AdGene, which collects and serves as, serves as a clearinghouse for all of the different CRISPR reagents, anybody can design an experiment and edit the DNA of any organism they wish. What do Las Salinas de Santa Pola, or the Spanish salt flats, have to do with CRISPR? Well, that's really where my CRISPR voyage of discovery started, because the gentleman, the professor in Spain, who first really described and posited a function for CRISPR, that really got the whole ball rolling, is a professor of microbiology at the University of Alicante, on the southeast corner of Spain. And I visited Francisco Mojica a couple of years ago, and he took me in his Volkswagen Passat down to the salt lakes of Santa Pola. It looks like a wildlife reserve. There are flamingos, there are wafts of sulfurous odors caused by bacteria. As far as the eye can see, you just see these lagoons of water. But what this place is, is a, it's a factory. It's a place for mining and extracting salt, huge, huge tons of salt from the Mediterranean Ocean by virtue of the sun and the wind in that part of the world. And Mojica was interested in why there was such an abundance of microbial wildlife in these salt lakes. It turns out that there are microbes that love the saltier the lagoons got the happier these microbes were. So these are such an extreme habitat that you couldn't easily take these microbes back to the lab and culture them. It had to, you had to try to replicate these incredibly bizarre, rather harsh conditions. 
And Mojica wanted to know back in the 90s, how can these microbes, what is it about their DNA, their genetic makeup, that allows them to live in these incredibly salty conditions? Why don't these cells just sort of burst because of osmosis? And so when he encountered these CRISPR repeats, he sort of put two and two together and thought, aha, Eureka, it must be these bizarre, strange mystery sequences in these microbial genomes. Surely the only reason these things exist, because no one else has a clue why they could possibly exist, must be because they're adapting to the salt. It was a lovely theory. It was completely wrong. But that was what sparked Mohika's fascination with CRISPR. And he spent the next 10 years on a sort of an obsessive quest to try to understand what their function was. He could sequence these bits of DNA, and then he could throw these sequences into the computer and ask the computer, have you found anything like this before? And for almost a decade, every time he tried this experiment, he drew a blank. And then one summer's day in 2003, he threw the same sequence that he'd done many times before into the computer computer search that looks for a match against any other DNA sequence that has been deposited in any other organism. And lo and behold, he finally got a match. And what it showed him was that these mystery sequences in the Haloferrax microbes in these salt lakes were actually derived from viruses. And from there, a group of investigators slowly but surely put the pieces together and speculated with a huge amount of circumstantial evidence that what the purpose of CRISPR must be to capture these viral sequences. And there could only be one reason to want to do that. And that must be to arm, provide an immune defense system against viruses. How did yogurt help with the evolution of CRISPR? Yeah. Well, when you're culturing dairy, when you're trying to make yogurt or cheeses, it's a very sophisticated process. And there are companies, many of them based in Europe, in France and Denmark and other places that are specialized in this. And it turns out that a team of scientists at Denisco, which has now since been acquired by DuPont, were very eager to understand how to make their bacteria that they used in the starter cultures to kick off the fermentation process. How can they make these bacteria resistant as much as possible to phages, because if you're not careful, you've suddenly got 10,000 liters or something of very, very liquid yogurt that's going to go to waste because you were unable to inoculate your cultures against phages that are just floating around in the air. So it was always a very dicey proposition. And by looking at CRISPR, they found out that they were able to provide a means to basically immunize their bacteria to prevent them from succumbing to phages and thus keeping these high throughput fermentation factories open. And in 2007, a team of scientists at Denisco, led by Rodolphe Barangu and Philippe Horvath, published a landmark paper in Science that said, we've taken the CRISPR repeats that Francisco Mojica and other scientists have described. We've taken their theory that it's an immune system against phage or viruses, and we've proven that that is indeed what these sequences do. So with that discovery in 2007, we suddenly were able to see, the whole world was able to see, that CRISPR is indeed now experimentally proven to be an immune defense system. And it works by cutting DNA. And once you understand and figure out that, aha, nature has evolved a system to cut DNA, you've got a natural system that's able to cleave DNA, that set the minds of a number of very imaginative scientists flying off to see how they could adapt and better understand and use that process. Speaking of, who are the Thelma and Louise of biomedical research and why? Yeah, there are many great scientists who've worked on CRISPR over the last decade. And two of the biggest names or the most familiar names that I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of and seen in documentaries and so on are Jennifer Doudner and Emmanuel Charpentier. Jennifer Doudner is a structural biologist and chemist at the University of California at Berkeley and also an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Emmanuel Charpentier is a French microbiologist who bounced around a bit searching for tenure and funding after she did a postdoc in New York and went back to Europe. And she was working in Sweden. She's now based in Berlin. 
And in 2011, these two women met at a conference for the first time and forged a collaboration. They both had areas of expertise that were complementary, and they wanted to better understand how CRISPR works. And this collaboration, which was hatched at a conference in Puerto Rico in March of 2011, led to an incredibly productive, historic 12 months of collaboration between these two teams, leading to what one of the guys I quote in the book, Theodore Ernov, who now works with Doudna, calls an immortal paper published in Science in the summer of 2012, which really sparked what we call the CRISPR craze or the CRISPR revolution. A French newspaper in profiling Charpentier called Doudna and Charpentier, the Thelma and Louise of molecular biology. Their contributions have garnered most of the most prestigious scientific prizes, including in 2018, the Kavli Prize, which they shared with a colleague. Virtually all other prizes as well. They've won the Breakthrough Prize, which is the most valuable prize in molecular biology, $3 million for that one. And the Nobel Prize, it seems to be only a matter of time before they win that as well. Why was January 3rd, 2013, an emotional roller coaster for Doudna? Well, if I just quickly go back to the summer of 2012, sure. Dowden and Charpentier published this classic paper in Science that basically said we can take the CRISPR system and we've shown that we can program it if we prime this CRISPR system not to attack viral DNA like bacteria do, but to attack essentially any piece of DNA that we might want to target, we can program CRISPR in the most precise way to recognize a single base change in a sequence of DNA and go and target and cleave that piece of DNA. And that paper set up the premise for gene editing. It was widely speculated that we now had all of the components in order to do that. But in January of 2013, so just six or seven months later, two other teams, both based in the Boston area, Feng Zhang at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and George Church's team at the Harvard Medical School, just across the Charles River there at Harvard Medical School in Boston, published back-to-back -back papers in the same journal, Science, that took the same system, essentially, that Dowden and Charpentier had described, but this time showed that they could import it into human cells or mammalian cells and get CRISPR now to programmably target and edit a gene in a human cell. That was a huge step. It really proved that even given the complexity of the nucleus, which are 23 pairs of chromosomes are packaged, CRISPR could still work in that very alien surrounding, a far cry from a bacterial system or a test tube, which is the context that the earlier Doudna Charpentier team had worked in. So that was very important. It really gave the green light to launching a biotech industry based on CRISPR gene editing. Feng Zhang, of course, has become another household name with CRISPR yeah. gene editing. It, it was interesting to learn that he hadn't even heard of CRISPR until 2011. And yeah. he also did something incredible less than two weeks later. What did he invent just nine days after learning about CRISPR for the first time? Well, he had just started his own independent laboratory at the Broad Institute, directed by Eric Lander. The Broad has become one of the most impressive and well-funded and prestigious institutes in the whole biomedical world, and certainly in the United States. And Feng Zhang had been, his potential had been seen and documented very early on from pioneering work that he'd done in other trailblazing areas of science, including uh, neuroscience in particular. And so people at the Broad Institute spotted his potential and he was given this very prominent position. And Fung went back to attend a conference at Harvard Medical School and his ears perked up when he heard a microbiologist and ophthalmologist use the term CRISPR. He'd probably heard of the term CRISPR, but he hadn't really seen the relevance of CRISPR for his own work. Fung had been one of the investigators trying to get gene editing to work and make it easy and reproducible. Some of the systems and platforms that we talked about at the beginning of our discussion. But he recognized that this was not going to be easy. When he heard that CRISPR worked in tandem with bacterial nucleases, these enzymes that cut DNA, he got very excited and 
The next day he flew to a conference, but rather than attend the conference, he says he sort of barricaded himself in his hotel room because he was devouring the literature, trying to learn everything he could about CRISPR. And with his colleagues, he was furiously emailing back and forth saying, we must look at this. This could be the tool that we need to begin to engineer genes in mice and eventually in humans to model diseases. And this that was sort of the grand aim of his work. So within 10 days or so of hearing the term CRISPR, he had filed a memorandum of invention at his host institute basically laying the seeds for potentially documenting his invention and his plan to develop a gene editing system around CRISPR. What was fueling his aggressive nature in pushing this technology towards humans? Well, I went back and looked at a lot of interviews and videos he presented. Fung arrived in this country at 12 years of age. His mother was already working here. And they settled in Des Moines, Iowa, not <laughs> necessarily the first place you think of as a you know, bastion of biotech research. But he loved it there. He settled in. He learned English very quickly. His scientific and academic excellence was evident early on. And he tells a lot of fun stories about his first experience working in a gene therapy lab, which was just a wake-up call for him. This was clearly what he was sort of destined to do. He said the first documentary that he enjoyed watching in a sort of a, a Saturday afternoon class was Jurassic Park. He just he <laughs> almost took this as, this is real science. I know it's science fiction, but this could be real. The premise of taking DNA and engineering it seemed entirely feasible to him. And that really inspired his work through his undergraduate work at Harvard, then his PhD at Stanford, and then going back to Boston, working with George Church, one of the big names in genome engineering. And every step along the way, he became more and more convinced that we have the tools, just as, as we play with Legos or build electronic circuits, there's no reason we can't make DNA circuits, make genetic circuits that program cells and tissues and organisms to do what we want to do, ultimately with the goal of curing disease. So I think that was fundamentally what he was hoping to do over the arc of his career and may still be the case. But CRISPR suddenly provided the most malleable operational code to allow him to do some of these bigger questions. But along the way, CRISPR, of course, just became a, well, more than a cottage industry. It became a, a whole discipline by itself. George Church was one of the original developers of CRISPR gene editing. Was he at all frustrated when Zhang started to receive so much credit despite the fact that he was working through his lab? Yeah, I don't think he was necessarily personally frustrated with Fung. There's an episode that I tell in the book that George has expressed some frustration. I don't think he's losing sleep over it. But we had the Doudna Charpentier team publishing a landmark paper in 2012. And then six months later, we had Zhang and Church independently publishing kind of related papers in science that are all part of the annals now of CRISPR's recent history. And George did give an interview to a science magazine a few years later saying, it's puzzling to me, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, it's puzzling to me how people have sort of forgotten that I was one of the teams that proved that CRISPR can work in mammalian cells. Feng Zhang seems to get all the credit for that. And it may be that when we think and try to play out in our minds, well, who deserves the credit? Who deserves the invention? Who deserves the accolades? Who deserves the Nobel Prize? We're conditioned to think in terms of triplets because the Nobel Prize can only be awarded to a maximum of three people for any given discovery. That's the rules of the foundation. So if we have Doudna and Charpentier and Zhang and Church, well, four into three doesn't go. So somebody has to fall by the wayside because undoubtedly the Nobel Prize is going to be awarded for CRISPR at some point. And so George, because George has 300 other areas of interest, many of which we may even talk about during the rest of our discussion, he quickly moved on. And the people who did the work in his lab also moved on because I think they were less interested. They weren't going to waste time worrying about who developed CRISPR, or who got the credit for CRISPR. They were too busy starting their own labs or building their own companies. 
And George is a sort of like a shark. He never stops. He's very restless. So he's always moving. And there's always a new idea coming from either him or people in his lab. And so I don't think this is going to uh, hold him back too much longer. And we're going to get into one of the ideas he is currently working on yeah. at the end. It's I guess it's ironic that Zhang was initially inspired by Jurassic Park because there is something very yeah. Jurassic Park related to Mr. Church. We'll talk about that at the end of this conversation, though. My favorite book of all time is Brave New World. How far off was this idea of genetic manipulation when the book was first released in 1932? Brave New World is often quoted at ethics conferences, and it's certainly come up a lot in the last few years. But I don't think Aldous Huxley was really speculating too much about using genetic manipulation as a way to create different tiers or castes in society. So that's quite a big discrepancy. But in the book, I try to weave and go back and look at some of the sort of pioneering, you know, where did some of these ideas come from? The term genetic engineering was first quoted in a novel in, in the early 1950s. And then we sort of had the double helix, the landmark discovery of this structure of DNA in 1953, of course. Then we moved on to the unraveling of the genetic code. And I think that was a particularly ripe time because as we figured out how specific triplets of letters of DNA, ACG or GCA or CTT or whatever the triplet might be, how each of these triplets encodes a specific amino acid, which is the building block of proteins. Some of the wiser scientists involved in this work or peripheral to this work really began to get worried because they could see that we were now unlocking the key of life in a test tube. And you didn't have to be an Aldous Huxley to see that we were going to be able to establish and capture the means by which we could artificially synthesize some of these sequences and use them for our own ends, hopefully for beneficial medical goals, but not necessarily. And so even in the early 1960s, a number of scientists were raising sort of red flags and warning that society humankind was going to have to be very careful about the way it exerted the controls over our genetic destiny. And these warnings continue to come up almost once a decade, almost as if on cue, with the birth of Louise Brown, the first test tube baby. Then we had the Human Genome Project, and then we had the cloning of Dolly the sheep in, in the late 1990s. The conclusion of the Human Genome Project, stem cells. So there's always been a cause for concern. And uh, now, of course, with CRISPR and a discussion that was, must give her huge credit, really led by Jennifer Doudna, who, having really discovered the tools to enable this revolution, didn't necessarily have to be the conscience of the scientific community. But that was a role that she largely took upon herself to uh, beg people to start thinking that and warning that CRISPR could be potentially misused. And then just two years ago, when I devote a big section in the book to this story, a Chinese scientist really took upon himself to really manipulate the DNA of human embryos. And so what was a sort of a theoretical kind of warning and the fodder for many great science fiction books and films, suddenly, incredibly, it became reality just a couple of years ago. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that. And uh, we'll start with the Nature publication, they published a paper on embryonic genome editing in 2017, but they actually went with a study from the U.S. over numerous examples out of China. Did they do so simply because the research happened in America, or was there something more at play there? No, no, not at all. It may have been perceived that way by some people, and perhaps in China, but nature doesn't make glib decisions purely based on the nationality of the authors. So nature wouldn't reveal why they publish a particular paper. They won't reveal the inner workings or you know, the editorial decisions or what the reviewers of the paper said. But I think we can safely piece it together. In 2015, so two years earlier than the paper that you referenced, a Chinese group published the first attempts to edit DNA in human embryos. Now, these were not viable embryos. There was no intention to re-implant them into a woman to have an actual baby. These were purely research experiments on non-viable discarded human embryos from IVF experiments, just to sort of better understand the, the mechanics of editing DNA 
for scientific, uh, early scientific purposes. And it turns out that there was a string of papers published in relatively obscure journals from Chinese groups. In fact, the first eight such studies were all from Chinese groups. So it showed that there was a lot of interest and a lot of emerging expertise in China. But part of the reason that these were not published in the glamour journals, you know, the prestigious journals like Nature or Science or the New England Journal of Medicine, is that these early efforts were not terribly successful. If the investigators set out to edit a specific gene, they reported that their success rate wasn't very great, or they found a lot of errors cropping up in other parts of the DNA. So no major scientific journal is going to want to publish a study that is deemed to be flawed at a at sort of a technical level. When an American group led by an investigator named Shukrat Metalipov submitted their paper to Nature in 2017, they were targeting a known disease gene and reporting high degrees of success in correcting that gene. And so I surmise, I think other people do too, that that was really the premise for Nature deciding to publish that paper and make it real headline news. And they would have published that regardless of which country the authors came from. I would imagine a fair number of people remember the hashtag CRISPR babies from back in 2018. Who was responsible for this? And how did the word initially leak out that something of this nature was happening? Yeah, it is still an extraordinary story. You almost have to pinch yourself that it happened. I have to admit, Um, this part of the book, it turns into like this medical thriller. I was finding myself like gripping the side of my couch as I was reading it or my covers if I was reading in bed before going to sleep at night. I thought you did a phenomenal job of covering this. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm flattered. So this would be quite a long answer to your very simple question, but let me try and take it in two parts. One is, who was responsible for this experiment or this trial, if you like? And then I'll tell you the fun story of how the story was broken. I wish it had been me, but it was a colleague of mine, (laughs) Antonio Regalado, and I gave him huge props for what he did. So there's a young Chinese scientist, a very, very capable scientist named He Jiankui, who goes by JK, and I'll just refer to him as JK for simplicity, who, although he came from a very poor background in the middle of China, went to a very good school, very good university, earned a scholarship to take part in a PhD program at Rice University in Texas, working with a very talented professor named Michael Deem. He got his PhD in just three or four years, publishing an array of half a dozen papers, wildly different papers. I mean, I think this JK say whatever you will about him, but intellectually, he's a very capable scientist. From Rice, he went to Stanford to take a postdoctoral position with Stephen Quake, a very well-known bioengineer who has launched many, many companies, an expert in DNA sequencing and cellular analysis. And within just a year of being in Quake's lab, JK was being lured back to China to take up a professorship at Sustec University, a new university in Shenzhen, and offered lots of money and uh, perks and privileges that he just couldn't refuse. So really a little bit early, I suspect, with just a three-year PhD and one year of postdoctoral training under his belt, he was now going back, given lots and lots of money, the red carpet was rolled out, and told, go conquer the world. And so JK set about making his mark in science. And I thought he'd already was kind of well on the way to doing that. He co-founded a DNA sequencing company using some of the same techniques that Steve Quake had developed. That was called Direct Genomics. And he made a lot of money doing that. The company seemed to be flying high or poised to fly very high. And that would seem to be enough for most entrepreneurs. But he wanted to do something bigger, something even more spectacular. And gene editing became, although he had no practical experience working with CRISPR, he published maybe one paper on CRISPR as a theoretical exercise as part of his PhD, but he became enamored of CRISPR. He wanted to leave his mark on science. One of his role models was Bob Edwards, one of the co-inventors of IVF, And even though the naysayers doubted it and he was criticized for it, this didn't phase JK at all. He wanted to kind of be the Bob Edwards of CRISPR gene editing. In 2016, he took a trip to the AIDS village. AIDS is still quite the stigma in China. There were explosions of AIDS in the 1990s, and there are still relics of this in parts in villages throughout central China. And this, I think, affected 
JK, and he felt that if there was anything he could do to potentially immunize babies from ever contracting HIV, by immunize, I mean genetically immunize, then that would surely cement his place in the history, in the pantheon of great scientists and great Chinese scientists. And so there is a way that you can do this in principle. There is a gene that we all carry called CCR5, and many of us walk around with an inactive version of CCR5. And it doesn't seem to cause us any ill effects. But interestingly, what it does do is it prevents HIV from infecting our cells. The so-called Berlin patient carries now has this CCR5 inactive gene. And JK wanted to sort of mimic this, take people who naturally carry this immunity and find Chinese couples where one of the parents carries HIV and to minimize, if not abolish, the risk of HIV being transmitted to the embryo, to the fetus, to the baby. JK felt he had a good rationale to inactivate, to gene edit this CCR5 gene in the embryo to prevent them, even if exposed to HIV, from coming down with the disease. And so he set about crossing this red line that geneticists had set that said we should never go about doing this. We should never create a genetically edited baby. JK did this more or less in secret, although one of the bizarre ironies in the book that has been widely reported as this story came out is that he had actually confided in a number of scientists, including his PhD advisor, including his postdoctoral advisor. He'd taken them into his confidence and even if these guys were, and several other scientists as well, even though they were uncomfortable with what JK was telling them, they didn't raise the alarm. Or if they did, they just briefly mentioned it to a close colleague. They didn't call the head of the NIH. They didn't call a journalist. They didn't call the dean of JK's medical school. They all seemed to be somewhat paralyzed and frozen and didn't want to break a confidence and just didn't quite know where to turn. So in 2018, a woman was impregnated with these gene-edited embryos. Twins were born some nine months later. And all we knew was their names, Lulu and Nana. And the way the story broke was down to remarkable reporting by a reporter at MIT Technology Review magazine named Antonio Regalado. As I document in the book, in October of 2018, Regalado had a chance meeting with JK. It was off the record, but Regalado was interviewing as part of a film, a documentary film. He was traveling around China, interviewing some of the pioneers of embryo editing, some of the Chinese scientists who'd done some of these early experiments that we talked about a little bit earlier. And he was introduced to JK in an off the record discussion. And at the end of that, it was almost a two-hour discussion in a hotel lobby in Guangzhou near Shenzhen. Regalado looked at his colleagues after JK had left and sort of rubbed his hands saying, basically, I'm paraphrasing, I think we've got it. I think this guy, he's told us about early preclinical experiments. He's told us about pregnant monkeys where he's engineered genes. I think he wants to do this. And if he wants to do it, he may have already started to do it. And after he got back to America, Regalado began searching high and low for any paper trail, any documents that he could find. He called confidants of JK. And finally, on Thanksgiving weekend of 2018, just two days before the start of a major international bioethics conference in Hong Kong, Regalado found the document, found a registration of the clinical trial. And he could see from the terminology the JK was indeed setting about treating women with the CCR5 gene. He didn't have proof at the time that babies had been born. But in another irony, it turns out that JK's team, working through a, an American PR professional that they'd hired named Ryan Farrell, had liaised with the Associated Press to work on an exclusive blockbuster story that would be published at the right time. So the Associated Press had agreed to keep this material under embargo until the whole story could be orchestrated and rolled out. With Regalado's scoop flying around the world and through Twitter and everywhere, Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, the AP decided to uh, quickly polish off their story. 
because they had confirmation that twins had been born, Lulu and Nana. And so that week in, in Hong Kong was wild as we all came to terms with the fact that two CRISPR babies, we now know of a third, but at the time it was two CRISPR babies had actually been born. JK addressed the crowd about his accomplishment at that summit. How'd it go? Yeah, not well, not well for him anyway. <laughs> I was in the front row. I was supposed to be in the back of this beautiful auditorium at Hong Kong University, packed house, hundreds of press and photographers. I'd never seen so many press gathered for a scientific presentation. So it was an extraordinary scene. Just 10 minutes before he was due to walk on stage, I walked down the aisle to ask a question. I can't even remember what question I asked. I just want an excuse to get down to the front of the hall so I could sneak into the front row for this moment of history. He came in to a smattering, if that, of applause. The camera shutters were deafening. In fact, when JK started to speak and present his results and try to justify what he had done, the chair of that session had to get up walk over to the bullpen that was housing these hundreds of press photographers and say, would you please shut up? We can't hear the speaker. You've surely got a photograph by now. JK resumed. But by this point, through the AP story, through the YouTube videos that he'd posted and through Regalado's reporting, we sort of had the essence. We understood what he had tried to do. And I think the vast unanimous, almost unanimous opinion was one of revulsion that no matter how well these experiments have been conducted, and it turns out they hadn't been conducted well, but the overriding feeling was, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have tried to do this in secret. What were you thinking? You weren't helping these children. You weren't helping the families. There's other techniques that you could do to achieve the goals that you were trying to do. And clearly, and this has since pretty much been borne out, Clearly, you were doing this for the wrong reasons. You were seeking fame. You were seeking glory. Maybe you were somehow trying to seek some sort of pride for your country, but you shouldn't have done this. And if you had shared your plans with the wider scientific community and medical community, you would have maybe impolitely, maybe politely, you would have been told, no, don't even think about doing this, largely because CRISPR, for all of its promise and all of its potential, it is not yet 100% precise, 100% safe, 100% accurate. We cannot do a CRISPR experiment and guarantee a couple that we won't see any collateral damage in all of the DNA, except for the one small sliver of DNA that we're trying to target, that we're trying to edit. We will get there eventually. I'm absolutely convinced that the technology will get there. So it was a shambles. He spent an hour, and I give him credit for at least being willing to take questions from the audience. And so his whole session lasted an hour. But when he left the stage, I, and I think most people, had a pretty eerie feeling that things weren't going to go well for him. And we have now know what happened to him. He crossed the border from Hong Kong back to Shenzhen. He was immediately put into house arrest, or as the Chinese like to call it, residential surveillance. <laughs> um, he was spotted there by a, uh, a New York Times, a very clever, industrious New York Times bureau reporter in, from Beijing who went down to try to find him and played on a hunch that he might be detained in a guest house on the university campus. And sure enough, she found, her name's Elsie Chen, she found him and photographed him standing on the balcony looking a little lost or on the phone with somebody. And he remained under surveillance for many, many months. He did have some contact with some confidants, but that contact seemed to have been ended in early 2019. And at the end of that year, it was announced that he had been sent to prison for a term of three years. Two of his accomplices also received suspended sentences. And I think a ban on any future gene editing experiments. So I don't know what the future holds for Jakey. I don't think too many people are losing sleep over it. In some ways, it's a sad story. And now we have to pick up the pieces and hope that lasting damage to the technology and to the field has not been done. I don't think lasting damage has been done, but this will leave a stain that we'll be teaching in ethics classes for decades to come. You just went over some very valid criticisms as to why he was in the wrong. Are there any unfair criticisms of JK, though? unfair criticisms. Well, we still don't really know, because we haven't heard from him, what his motivation was. We do have, 
because Antonio Regalado and others have published excerpts, we do have as documentary evidence the manuscript that he had submitted to Nature just before this story broke in Hong Kong. And months afterwards, excerpts from this Nature manuscript were posted and they make for dire reading. I mean, Nature didn't want to touch this paper. They looked at it and I was an editor at Nature in the early part of my career, so I know exactly how this goes. When you get a sensational paper land on your desk or pop up on your computer screen these days, there's a rush of adrenaline. You feel that you could be the editor that shepherds this historic paper into print. For you and your professional editorial career, it doesn't get much better than that. But you also don't want to make a mistake. You also don't want to be that person that publishes a catastrophe or publishes a paper that becomes renowned for fraud or for other misdeeds. So Nature took a very hard, close look at this, but quickly declined to consider it. It then went to another prestigious journal, the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, and they sent it out for review to lots of viewers, including George Church. They also declined. And the reasons they would have declined it, we've now all had a chance to review. It's because the paper was really badly written. It made overblown claims, grandiose claims about how by treating CCR5, this one gene in this one pair of embryos, how this would set the stage for potentially treating millions of patients with HIV and other genetic diseases. It just betrayed a lack of thought and precision about an understanding about what this technology can and cannot be used for. So I will be interested eventually when JK uh, comes out of prison and if he feels like talking, we may learn a little bit more about who knew what and when and why. We're still a little bit in the dark. One of the narratives that came out, Trey, during this whole saga was that JK was a rogue actor. He was a rogue scientist. He was going against the grain. He was doing stuff that he shouldn't have been doing. And it sort of paints as sort of a Frankenstein air to him. You almost sort of want to picture him in this quiet, dark lit laboratory with cauldrons of bubbling liquids in the background. And in fact, we know and we're piecing together that he had some very high level contacts. We know he was very well funded. His social media page just had a who's who of meet and greets and posing for photographs with his Nobel Prize winning advisors and other Chinese dignitaries. One of the Chinese confidants that we know he worked closely with, because this person was involved in one of the informed consent briefings with some of the couples that JK was trying to lure into his trial, is a very senior Chinese scientist, a co-founder of a major genetics institute in China. So I think we still need to learn a little bit more about who helped him, who knew what he was planning. But more importantly than that, is we don't know anything other than these nicknames and about the two children that he treated, now three children. A third child was born in May of 2019. So as best we can tell, Trey, there are three babies, two are approaching their second birthday, one is about 18 months old, who JK attempted to edit their DNA. He didn't do a good job of it. He targeted the right gene or the gene he was after, but the edits that he ended up introducing into their DNA are not edits. It's not the same edit that we see occurring in naturally in a small part of the population. So these are human experiments. He vandalized their DNA for no good reason. And that's a stain that he will have to live with for the rest of his life. Some think that thousands of edited human embryos will be born this century. Do you believe that? No, I don't. So in the penultimate chapter of my book, I try to sort of dive through all of the ethical arguments and try to sort of almost not play devil's advocate exactly, but try to lay out what circumstances might support the creation of a gene-edited embryo. And just as the book is coming out, we now also have, and I preview it in the book, a new report just came out a few weeks ago by a commission set up by the National Academies of Sciences in the United States. And this commission has done a tremendous job of really spending a year poring over the scenarios of under what medical circumstances could gene editing be contemplated? Because remember, and we haven't really emphasized this, 
when you make a gene edit in an embryo, those edits don't just affect the person. They don't just affect the twins, Lulu and Nana, somewhere in China. When those twins have babies of their own, those edits have a 50-50 chance of being passed down. So this is a permanent change, a permanent alteration in the gene pool, in the whole body of DNA in the world's population. So that's why people are so exercised about this topic. This isn't just doing gene therapy to treat a patient with muscular dystrophy or blindness or Alzheimer's disease, where you might go in, try to repair the relevant gene, and that fix will stay with that person, but won't be passed down. When you make the edit at the stage of a human embryo, then that edited piece of DNA multiplies with every cell division, and it then becomes populated in every cell of that person, and thus becomes populated in the sperm and egg cells, depending on whether they're male or female. So that's why this is a profound significance, because now we're talking about something that could affect the whole human race. We are now playing God to a small degree, but that's the kind of power that we now have. So there were some people, and I talk about them in the book, that were speculating that the technology is so easy that if JK, somebody with no CRISPR technical experience, could actually get this to work simply by partnering with a talented embryologist and some other scientists, well, then in principle, anybody could go around and essentially say, hey, I'm going to set up a gene editing clinic offshore in somewhere in Southeast Asia or the Caribbean or wherever, South America, you pick your favorite tourist medical tourism destination. <laughs> in principle, that could happen. But what this new report from the National Academies, I think, does a good job of laying out is here are the scenarios where gene editing could potentially make sense because there is no alternative. Now, if you have a family history of a genetic disease and you want to try to avoid passing on a particular gene, there is a well-established method now that many medical centers and clinics in the United States and around the world offer, and it's called pre-implantation genetic testing, pre-implantation genetic testing. So you can do IVF, create an embryo or a series of embryos in the laboratory from your partner and yourself. And then at each embryo, once it reaches a few days of age, you can carefully siphon off a couple of the cells, look at the DNA, and essentially tag each embryo in your dish and say, this one is healthy. This one carries the gene because it won't cause a disease. This one carries two copies of a recessive disease like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease, and thus we don't want to implant this particular embryo because that will be guaranteed to be an affected child. So for most couples with genetic diseases, that is the accepted state-of-the-art practice. There's no risk of abortion because you're only implanting the embryos that you know or can safeguard will give you a healthy pregnancy. But there are some rare instances where that isn't the case. And here's an example. A few months after the JK saga in Hong Kong swept the world, a Russian geneticist named Denis Rebrikov started giving interviews telling anybody who would listen, I want to do the same thing. I want to do what JK did. I see no problem with what he did. I don't want to do it for HIV necessarily. I want to do it for another disease that is prevalent in Russia. I want to do it for deafness. So there are couples in Russia and other countries, but we're focusing on Russia here, where both members of the couple have an inherited form of deafness, where they have inherited two copies of a defective gene. So in this rare circumstance where they want to have a biologically related child, pre-implantation genetic testing won't work for them because no matter what combination of genes each embryo inherits, at this particular gene, it's going to be a defective gene. There's no healthy genes in either of the couples that they can potentially pass on. So pre-implantation genetic testing doesn't help them in their quest, and it's a perfectly reasonable quest, to have a biologically related child. So the only way in that circumstance that they could have a healthy hearing-enabled child is to perform genetic editing. And so I'll give Rebrikov credit. At least he's been upfront about it. He's not trying to hide his intentions. And 
I don't think most scientists or most physicians would have any hesitation about saying to this couple, if the technology is safe and we can make, do this genetic surgery safely, then in principle, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to have that procedure done. Of course, it would then engineer a change in the DNA that would be passed on to their children and their children and their children and so on. Rebrikov, no matter what his plans were, he last summer was told by the Russian authorities, not right now. We're going to think about it, but we're hearing from the World Health Organization and other respected bodies that we listen to that the time isn't right. And as I said uh, earlier in our discussion, Trey, the time is still isn't quite right where any scientist would say CRISPR is so safe in human embryos that we can just pursue it as a method of gene editing. It may be that the ways human embryos repair changes to their DNA is different than the way we as adults repair changes in our cells mm. when they break. And we've got to do a lot more basic research to really fully understand that process. We obviously previewed a little bit earlier uh, who George Church was. He was a man of many interests, and that includes trying to resurrect the woolly mammoth from extinction. How realistic is this, and is it a good idea? <laughs> I don't think it's terribly realistic, but there's nothing like hearing George Church go off on one of his imaginative ideas, because George is typically about 10 years ahead of everybody else, and it just takes the rest of us a little bit longer to catch up. Church is, as we said a little earlier, was one of the early leaders in getting CRISPR to work in mammalian cells. And one of the scientists that he worked with on one of his students who he worked with on that project went off and together with George, they launched a company called eGenesis, which is performing CRISPR in pigs. And you may think, well, okay, crispy pigs. Are we talking about crispy bacon? That sounds nice. <laughs> no, not for that purpose. He wants to engineer pigs so that we could use pigs potentially as a source of organs for organ transplantation. It's 100,000 people currently in the United States waiting for an organ transplant. And many of them are left waiting in frustration. If pigs were able to provide, and we know that from a physiological standpoint, they do provide a very safe alternative to human organs, then in principle, that would be a very interesting source for the medical community. One thing we have to do, though, is make sure that those organs are safe to transplant. And to do that, we have to use CRISPR, and this is what eGenesis comes in, to make a number of genetic fixes to the pig genome so that there's no risk of any untoward effects when those pig organs are transplanted into a, an accident victim or somebody with liver failure or whatever. And so that's what eGenesis is setting about. I tell that story simply to show that there are real world applications for doing CRISPR in animals that the George Church is spearheading. So I don't want to give you the impression that he's just some sort of crazy scientist. The woolly mammoth idea is a little bit more far-fetched, but we've had great success working with ancient DNA over the last few years, we now have a great picture of, for example, of the Neanderthal genome. So we can take bone samples and resurrect DNA from samples that have been frozen for 30, 40, 50, 100,000 years and recreate genome of our earliest uh, living ancestor. We can do something very similar with woolly mammoths. These are beautifully preserved remains in the Siberian permafrost. And everyone, of course, is concerned about climate change. And so George's idea is if we understand the woolly mammoth genome and we can sort of piece that together, then we could look at the woolly mammoth's nearest relative, the Asian elephant. And if we engineer perhaps as few as a few dozen specific genetic changes using CRISPR as our molecular scissors to create a woolly mammoth, version, a hairier Asian elephant with other genes transported and implanted from the woolly mammoth genome that we've decoded, then maybe we could create a new line of elephants that would essentially be the closest thing yet to the woolly mammoth. And by restoring them to their natural habitat in Siberia, we could help preserve the permafrost because as the permafrost melts, it exposes, it allows warm air to reach the underlying trapped deposits of methane. And this would be a catastrophe if these become released into the atmosphere and really just exacerbates the climate change and global warming that we're already seeing. So that's sort of the long range goal of one of George's many 
fascinating programs. They don't call it Jurassic Park. They call it Pleistocene Park. <laughs> but even some of George's other colleagues are very, uh, very skeptical that this is going to work. And one I quote in the book is Beth Shapiro, a very talented molecular geneticist in California, who wrote a book, How to Clone a Mammoth, although she doesn't really believe it's possible. So we'll see where that goes. Hey, you got a little bit, be a little bit crazy to achieve greatness. Yes, Occasionally, you do. You yes, may you even do. Uh, bring extinct species back from the dead. He is Kevin Davies, the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal and founding editor of Nature Genetics. He holds a master's in biochemistry from Oxford, a PhD in molecular genetics from the University of London, and he's the author of Cracking the Genome and the $1,000 Genome. His newest book is Editing Humanity, the CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Kevin, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Loved it, Trey. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening today. You can check out all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.